I, I got to admit something to you uh, that sometimes I feel a lot like the sentiment that's recorded for us in Judges 6. Uh, and if you're a, a Bible student, when I say Judges 6, your mind goes to uh, the historical account of a man named Gideon, who was a judge, a leader of Israel, leading God's people. The significant thing uh, about uh, Judges 6 and Gideon, at least initially, is that though he was leading Israel, Israel was under uh, oppression by a, a people called the Midianites. The Midianites were surrounding them. They were raiding uh, God's people. They had taken away uh, the weapons of war. So really the people were defenseless. And, um, and God calls Gideon to be the leader of his people during this time. And, and sometimes I feel like Gideon's initial assessment of the situation, uh, where Gideon says, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that everybody else told us about? Now, I don't know about you, but there are times when I start feeling like, well, God, if you're with us, if you're with me, why is all this going down the way it's going down? Right? Is it new news to any of you that 2020 is terrible? <laughs> it's a terrible. It doesn't look like it's getting any better. It doesn't look like the trajectory is up and to the right. And it appears as though the times that are coming are going to get more perilous before they ever get better. And, we and if you don't have the faith to utter the words yet, let me utter it on your behalf. God, if you are with us, where are you now? Because everything I've been told about you, everything that I knew you and trusted you, all the stories, it seems like the God of you back then is different than the God I'm experiencing now. Where is that God? And it's times like this, I have to remind myself to go back to Psalm 25. Psalm 25 says, to you, Jehovah, I lift up my soul. In you, O God, I will place my trust. Don't let my enemies triumph over me. Don't let me be put to shame. All those who hope and trust in you. We're going to be all right. The difficult thing about times of great uncertainty is that it can make us very, very fearful. And it can make us forget about the God who has done all these things and who will do all these things. And so as we wrap up this series, I'm going to wrap up this series and set up the next. Uh, and, and I want to jump into a book of the Bible called Matthew the first of the four gospels. So if you go to the middle of the Bible, take a right. It's the book right after the last Italian prophet called Malachi. Just kidding. It's... The first of the four gospels, Matthew. Now what has happened, a little context, what has happened is there's this time between the last that, uh, that we have the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament, and that's called the intertestimonial period, the, the space between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in that intertestimonial period, we have no indication that God was actively speaking through people and speaking to people on a large scale. There, there's, there's nothing 
There's no text. There's no indication. It's called the, the silent years. When God just seems to have have left people to their own devices, where he has just decided not to reveal himself in grand and magnificent ways, when when he has just decided to apparently take a step back. It feels like for 400 years they were going through 2020. And after those years, God decided to now again show up in human history through Jesus. Jesus, fully God, and fully man. It's called the hypostatic union. Complete divinity of God, God's self, resident in complete humanity, the merging and marrying completely, fully God, fully human in the man who is God, Jesus the Christ, through whom and for him all things were made. Of him nothing was made that wasn't made by him. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is God in the flesh. And upon his birth and his growth in the world, as he grew in wisdom and stature with both God and man, he began to reveal to his followers and for us now who he is, who he will always be and what we can count on and rely on him and how we position ourselves to experience him. And so into that, we jump Matthew 14. If you have a Bible and brought one with you or if you're following us online, get it. It, it's always good to have a paper Bible. Um, it, but, but if you got it on your, on, your, on your electronic device, that's good too. Just if you can get to Matthew 14, that's where we're going to be. And so let me, let me read to you the text we're going we're gonna to be looking at here. If you've been in church at, you know, any length of time, this story may be somewhat familiar to you. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side of the lake while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Someone's doing that right now, crying out in fear. Uh, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Well, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Well, come on in, Jesus said. And Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now we have seen your divinity. Now we have seen your sovereignty. Now we understand. We're beginning to get the picture of exactly who this Jesus is. Fully God and fully man. How are we not uncertain in times of uncertainty? Well, let me suggest you this. In order for a person to walk and act by faith, there must first be uncertainty. For without uncertainty, there can be no faith. 
When things are certain and secured, you don't need faith. And so for people to walk by faith and live by faith, we are of a necessity needing uncertainty. So if you are a person who chooses to be a Christ follower and wants to be a person of faith, understand then, then you are necessarily asking to be put in times and seasons and scenarios of uncertainty. Is that good news? Here's the danger of uncertainty. The danger of uncertainty is that it paralyzes people. And when you're unsure of the next step to take, the tendency is to take no step at all. I'm going to wait for clear direction. I'm going to wait for clear skies. I'm going to wait for a straight path. And it's by faith that enables the person in the midst of uncertainty to take steps despite their uncertainty. And it's only people of faith that can be certain in times of uncertainty because it's only people of faith that possess faith. See, faith does not operate when there's a guarantee of victory. Faith only operates when there's a possibility of defeat. You don't need faith when there's a guarantee. None of you acted in faith when you came and sat down on those chairs today. Because there, in your mind, there was no possibility of it crumbling. So it took no faith to sit down. Do you understand? Faith only operates when there's a possibility of defeat. See, our problem is, while we are called to a life of faith, we want a life of guarantees. And so what we want fights against who we're called to be. And we pray and we plead with God to make it a life of guarantees. And he says, if I did that, I love you, but if I did that, you would never become a person of faith. Faith in the Bible is always present tense. It's always an action that takes feet right now. If you want to understand what faith is, substitute the word faith for risk. And then understand that the Bible says, by your faith, be it unto you. Now put risk in there. By your risk, be it unto you. That's faith. The Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Understand it like this. Without risk, it's impossible to please God. Risk does not happen in situations and scenarios of guaranteed victory. Risk only happens when you're not sure of the outcome. And it seems like the disciples... Whenever they would experience a great move of God, a revelation of who he is, a miracle, they would have this incredible mountaintop experience. They would celebrate it and it would be great joy. They're like, ah, this is fantastic. I'll follow you in. Only to follow up their faith with doubt. And it seems like they, much like us, have moments where we get glimpses of who God is and how strong and powerful and some, and that we can trust him completely only very soon thereafter to fall away into doubt and fear and uncertainty. And it's almost as if we try to hold God hostage and say, God, unless you moment by moment by moment, peel back heaven and let me see you on the throne and be absolutely overwhelmed every moment of every day with the sovereignty. If that doesn't happen, I'm going to doubt you. I'm going to look at this text. Verses 22, 23, and 24. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. But when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. 
Now when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was what? Contrary. Now let me just tell you what's going on here. Jesus had just finished, as recorded in the Bible, as feeding the 5,000. Now there was a lot more than 5,000 because that was 5,000 men. So probably when you had women and children, you're up to 10, 15,000 people. He's just done this incredible miracle, this incredible work. Uh, and, and, and now he just needed a break. Sometimes, don't you know that you just got to get away from people? You know what I'm saying? Even people you like. Even, even people you love. You just, I just need a break right now. And so Jesus sends everybody away. And sometime after lunch, he sends the disciples out on the boat to cross the lake. And he goes up on a mountain by himself to pray. Now these men, these, these disciples... They're on the boat. They're, some of them are professional fishermen. And this was the, the known lake. This is where a lot of them are from. They knew this lake. They knew how to, how to row. They knew how to sail a, a boat. They were not in unfamiliar territory. They were doing what they had always done. And they were supposed to get to the other side. But when we pick up the story here, late at night when Jesus is coming down from the mountain, they had made it, literally, the Bible says, about 600 feet from the shore. That's all they've gone. Why? Why had they been hours? Why? Why had they only made it 600 feet? Because why? Huh? Because the wind. Because the wind was against them. The Bible uses the word contrary. It means opposite. The wind was, there was a force that was pressing against them. Have you ever had in your life a contrary wind forcing against you? Have you ever had a contrary wind? That force that just was hindering your progress, the element that was continuing to keep you from reaching your goal and the, 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 the desired destination. Have you ever had that power that just kept pressing and you can't get past it? Have you ever had that contrary wind that no matter how hard you work, you're not getting anywhere? Have you ever had that contrary force in your life that was pressing, that was pushing, that was tossing you around? Have you ever been there? They just couldn't make it. Now, they were, they were actually handling the contrary wind somewhat well. It was a hassle, but they're making some progress. And honestly, we can handle some uncertainty, right? We can handle some pressure against it. As long as we can make a little bit of progress, we can handle it a little bit. But think about it. They had been rowing for hours. And they hadn't made it very far. And they had to start thinking, I wonder if we're ever going to get past this. I wonder if we're ever going to get through it. I wonder if the pressure is ever going to relent. And Jesus looks at them and sees them struggling. And he realizes they should be further along than what they are. Have you ever felt like you should be further along than where you are? Have you ever felt like I should be past this? I should be better now? This should be better. Well, I should be further along. Well, that's where they were. Have you ever felt like I, I shouldn't be stuck in the same place anymore? I shouldn't be dealing with this anymore. I shouldn't be. We shouldn't be. Sometimes in our lives, there are forces and winds that are contrary to our course. And so Jesus decides he's going to help. 
verses 25 through 27. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It's I. Don't be afraid. They were terrified. They saw a figure walking on the water. They'd never seen this before. They were suddenly looking at something they had never seen before. They were facing something they had never experienced before. Have you ever had that, had that thing in your life that you've never seen before, you never experienced before, you never thought you'd be there before, and your immediate reaction is fear? I just don't know. Not sure how this is going to go down. Not sure how this is going to play out. I want you to know something. That fear is so powerful, it will rob you of your ability to fight back. Fear is so powerful that it will steal the fight right out of you. They were so overcome with fear over something they didn't understand that they stopped rowing and they stopped even trying to make progress. And this is the danger of fear. Sometimes these contrary winds or these elements that we're not sure, sure exactly what it is, they come against us or they come at us and we're not sure and we respond in fear and we just stop. The result of fear, when we experience uncertainty and respond in fear, we lose the ability to even fight back. And so into that scenario, Jesus steps and he says these words, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, when the, that's a good translation of the word courage, but I'm going to tell you a little bit more fully what the word courage means. He says, be optimistic and be of good cheer. Now, now understand, they are terrified. They're not sure what's going on. They're not sure how it's going to play out. They're not sure what the future holds. And Jesus comes to them and says, hey, buck up, little soldier. It's all right. Not that big a deal. Have you ever had those moments when you are full of fear and uncertainty, are stressed, are worried? You don't know how this is going to play. You don't know what the next step is. You don't know. And someone comes to you and says, hey, relax, man. It's not that big a deal. Have you ever had, like... What's your feeling about that person at that time? Hmm? Like, like, wait, 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 wait. You don't understand how I feel about it. How dare you tell me to relax? I'm going to slap. Like, if you don't turn around and walk away, I'm going to slap you upside the face. And then I'm going to give you the opportunity to turn the other cheek so I can do it to the other one too. Right? And, and, and so Jesus, he, he tells me, hey, be optimistic. It almost seems a little bit trite. It seems a little bit dismissive. See, they might have the right to be afraid. Nothing they're doing works. They had failed at everything they used to be successful at. And they were in a situation they'd never uh, been in before. And they were experiencing problems they never experienced before. And Jesus shows up and says, cheer up, man. Be optimistic. Did you know that, that fear not is one of the greatest commands in all the Bible. It's one of the most often uttered commands in all the Bible. Fear not. Do you know why? Here's why. Because fear is the opposite of faith. Don't ever believe that doubt is the opposite of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Not according to the Bible. Fear is the opposite of faith. Here's why this is so important. Because fear and faith cannot coexist. 
If you're a person of faith or claim to be a person of faith, when you give in to fear, you've nullified your faith. Whenever you give in to fear, you nullify the commodity of faith that should be at work within you. And likewise, whenever you move in faith, you defeat fear. And I just need to ask you this morning, have you ever been fearful to obey God? Have you ever, have you ever in, in, like in your heart thought, I cannot see in this scenario how God's way is really going to work. I know what he said, and I know what I heard, but in this case, in this scenario, I can't imagine how doing it God's way is the best way. Have you ever felt as though I, my only option is to do it a way that is different than God's way? Have you ever known, I know that's God's desire, I know that's what he said, but I'm actually fearful to take it because I just can't see how, if that has been you, if it's been me, if it's been us at any moment, we have actually worked in opposite of the faith we're supposed to live by. We've destroyed it. So every time you and I have the opportunity to respond in faith and neglect it, we actually destroy the faith that we're supposed to be living by. Here's the danger. As I start destroying my faith that I'm supposed to be living by, I no longer believe God's way is the best way. And when I don't believe his way is the best way, and that contrary to that, I destroy the little faith I have left. And as I destroy the faith I have left, I believe more that God's ways don't work. And as I believe God's ways don't really work, so I don't have to really live by them, I destroy even more faith. Do you understand? Peter replied, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Well, come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. Notice Peter's first words. If it's you. Those are the same words that the devil used against Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness. If you are. This idea of, Lord, I know what you said. I know if it's true, if it's you, if I can. Here's the thing. The devil is the author of lies, the Bible says. He's also the author of doubt. And the moment we start believing the author of lies that says, don't know, I don't know if you can trust this, then we give birth to the, the doubts of the evil one. You have to be very careful. See, we have to realize that all the disciples saw Jesus walking towards them and all the disciples heard Jesus say, take courage. And all the disciples heard Jesus say, it is I. But only Peter said, Lord, call me to come to you. Everybody else in fear and uncertainty stayed satisfied in the boat. Now I like Peter. I like Peter a lot. He starts scared, and then he acts brave, and then he falls and fails, and then he gets up and he moves the world. I like Peter. Extra biblical sources tell us of Peter that he was called Peter the Giant. Peter was large, Peter was rough, and Peter was manly. And it was a man's man that moved in the face of fear. The other boys stayed in the boat. I want to suggest to you that I think it would be hard for Peter in today's America. And I think it would be difficult for him in most churches in America 
because Peter would not allow himself to be feminized. Let me press this a little bit. Here's what I know. God made females to be strong women. And God made males to be strong men. And for a woman to be strong does not mean that a man has to be weak. The greatest asset to a woman's strength is a strong man. And the greatest threat to a woman is a feminized man. Please understand that castrated masculinity will never move against fear. And castrated masculinity will never step into a fight. And castrated masculinity will never move towards danger. And castrated masculinity will never be the tip of the spear. And castrated masculinity will apologize for being a man. And castrated masculinity will stay in the boat. And castrated masculinity will let the winds of opposition direct their course. Now, I know this passage is not about biblical masculinity, but this passage wouldn't be in the Bible without it. It takes a strong woman and a strong man to move in the face of fear in opposition to uncertainty and to, by faith, move. Do you understand? Being certain in the midst of uncertainty has everything to do with faith. See, what faith does is faith informs your perspective of the situation. And that perspective will determine your prediction of it. Let me say it more clearly so you understand it better. Your perspective will determine your prediction. Faith will inform your perspective and your perspective will determine your prediction of the outcome. The disciples that stayed in the boat had a wrong perspective, and so they made a wrong prediction. Peter had a faith perspective, and he made a bold prediction. Do you understand? Do you understand? See, faith cannot live in the mind that cannot conceive of the possibility of faith. God never called people to languishing over the past. He always called people to the grand possibility of the future, even a future of walking on water. Now, this account would be fantastic if it stopped right here. If this account stopped right here, I would say, well, let's all go take a walk on Millerton right now. Like if, if the story stopped here, we could have faith that we too could walk on water. But the problem is that that has a part two. If it stopped right here, if it stopped right here, it'd be, it'd be Rocky winning the belt. It'd be Rudy getting in the game. And, you know, Old Yeller would die of old age. But, 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 but it doesn't stop here. It has a part two. Peter walks on the water, and then his perspective changed. And his perspective changed to the wind. His perspective changed from Jesus in faith to the contrary wind, the forces that were pressing against him. Now, I want you to notice what the Bible says. In verse 30, when he saw the wind was, what? Boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Please understand, we have to get this. This is very important. When we first set out, 
The wind is contrary. The moment we take steps of faith, the enemy gets boisterous. These are different words used of the same wind. It starts contrary. We can handle contrary because I can still make progress contrary. But then when we take steps of faith, it gets boisterous. The wind starts contrary and gets noisy and it starts shouting to you and the voices in your head start screaming to you. You can't do it. It won't work. You can't trust God. His word doesn't. And the enemy gets boisterous. Here's the problem. We oftentimes give more credence and credibility to the boisterous voices around around us than the whisper of God within us. Oh, I felt like that was really good. I, I, I just, I, I don't know what else to do because I felt like, I feel like I'm preaching pretty good right now, a little better than what some of you are listening. Some of you are dialed in. I see it in your eyes, but I, I mean, I just like, I felt like that was some pretty good stuff. Is all right? I'm not going to repeat it. It's online. Go look it up. You take, take your own time. But here's what happens. When our perspective changes to the boisterous, that's when we start to sink. Did you notice what the Bible said also, though? And I feel like I, I really need to point this out. When Peter's perspective changed to the boisterous wind, what, what happened to him? Huh? Right, he was afraid, and what was the what was the result? He didn't sink. Now pay attention. It says beginning to sink. How does a person begin to sink? Now, now follow me for a minute now. Have any of y'all ever jumped into a pool? Who's jumped into a pool? All right. Well, when you jumped into the pool, at what point did you begin to sink? Huh? You just sunk. Have you ever thrown a rock in a lake? Seriously. Okay, I just need to know because I'll use a different analogy if you've never thrown a rock in a lake. My assumption is you throw a rock. And so you throw a rock in a lake. When the rock hits the water, does it begin to sink? No, just cease. Peter's name is the rock. you got a rock on water, and the Bible says beginning to sink. What do you mean beginning to sink? Did you ever notice that before? It doesn't say he sunk. Beginning to sink with such knowledge that as he is beginning to sink, he has the wherewithal to say, as I'm going down, i got to cry out. Like he didn't just, here's why I think. Maybe he had a little bit of faith left. And that little bit of faith was what kept him from going under. Maybe the little bit of faith is all you need in the midst of the doubt, in the midst of the uncertainty, in the midst of the peril, in the midst of 2020. Maybe just a little bit of faith that's going to keep your head above water until Jesus actually shows up and does something about it. Maybe it's a little bit of faith that you hold on to that keeps your descent slow enough so that you will realize you've got to cry out to Jesus. Maybe it looked like this. Huh, this doesn't feel right. It feels like I used to be taller. Now my britches are getting wet. I think something is happening here. Huh. I think I'm beginning to sink and I think I'll cry out to Jesus. Do you understand? Beginning to sink. 
And the moment he cried out to Jesus, he was safe. Maybe some of you feel as though right now you're going under. You're not submerged yet, but you can feel it. Some of you right now are feeling like you're going down. You hadn't drowned yet, but the water's getting close. And maybe God is allowing you to begin to sink because he wants to give you time to realize that you need him. He's given you time to cry out for him. He's given you, he's put you in a spot you've never been before and you can feel the waters getting higher and you want out, but God wants your heart and he's given you time to have a change of perspective. You're realizing that though you're going under and there's a boat nearby, there ain't nobody in the boat who's going to help you right now. You're realizing right now that there's nobody else in your world who can step in and rescue you from drowning. So you've got two options. One, to go under and drown. That's your option. Or two, as you feel yourself beginning to sink, cry out to Jesus. You know what the outcome is of this? Watch this. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind what? It ceased. Jesus got him in a boat, and immediately the wind ceased. I want you to notice something. Jesus has calmed the wind a couple times. There's another account in the Bible when he was asleep in a boat and a huge storm came and the disciples start freaking out, thinking they're going to die. And they go, wait, Jesus up. And he's like, seriously, guys, I was having such good dreams right now. Uh, and he gets out and he commands the wind, sit down and shut up. And he addresses them when the winds die down. This isn't that time. Did you notice in this account, Jesus never commanded the wind and never addressed the wind. He didn't say anything to it. He didn't have to speak the wind to make the wind sit down and shut up. He didn't have to command the wind to go away and quit pressing. It just simply says he got in the boat and the wind ceased. Apparently, understand this, apparently simply the presence of Jesus is enough to make the wind be quiet. You understand who this Jesus is? When the Bible says the wind ceased, it means literally the wind got tired and quit. The wind just gave up. And some of you have such winds pressing against your life. And your prayer and hope is that Jesus gets you out of it and delivers you through it. And maybe God wants you to be in the middle of it so that he can come alongside you and to cry out to him and make the wind get tired and give up. So you understand not his ability to rescue, but his ability to reign. I feel like this is a good message. I want you to understand that Jesus can outlast any storm. Get by Jesus' side 
and you will outlast any storm that's coming against you. Cry out to Jesus and eventually the winds and the storms will get tired of fighting you because you're with Christ and they know they can't win that battle. Did you notice when Jesus showed up? No, you didn't notice that? It says during the fourth watch. Now the nighttime was divided into four periods of three hours. The first watch, the second watch, the third watch, the fourth watch. The fourth watch was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It's the last watch. It was right before sunrise. Now, some would disagree. Some preachers disagree. I mean, that's okay because they'll find out I'm right when we get to heaven. But this wasn't the darkest hours of the night. The darkest hours would have been typically between midnight and three. And if you notice that Jesus showed up in the fourth watch, not the third watch, not in the darkest times of midnight and three, but in the, when it was approaching sunrise between three and six, Jesus let them struggle apparently by themselves through the darkest hours of their peril. Why? Why would Jesus do that? Why wouldn't Jesus show up at the first hour when he knows they're struggling? Why wouldn't Jesus show up at the second hour before it gets too bad? Why wouldn't Jesus show up when it was the worst of the worst? Why would he wait? Because sometimes we got to go through the dark times so that we know that we can to know that the darkness might be scary, but it has no teeth. David said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because shadows don't have teeth. Where is God in the darkest moments of your life, of your seasons, of your scenarios? He is right with you. Because David also said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. He was right there. You know where Jesus is in your dark? We want to be right with you. You might be in a boat in the middle of a lake. And you might be facing contrary winds. And those winds, those forces against you might be getting real loud and boisterous right now and making you very, very fearful. But you got to know that Jesus is walking your way. And all it takes for you is to realize that though you might be beginning to sink, you ain't under yet. And you got time to say, Jesus, help, give me a hand. Rick, come up here. I gotta wind this up. Your trust of Jesus and your trust in Jesus will create space for heaven to enter your world. Your trust of Jesus and your trust in Jesus will create space in your life to receive the blessing of God. Understand this, and this is what's gonna drive this next series we're going in. How you trust God today will position you for blessings tomorrow. You have to, we have to understand this. How we trust God today will position us for blessings tomorrow. We want God's blessing and favor right now. And God says, no, 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 no. Right now, I want you to trust me. You have to trust me first. 
my encouragement for you, my encouragement for me, my encouragement for this church and those listening is to place your trust in Jesus, not just for eternity, but for your present. Your trust of him right now will be the thing that will position you for blessings tomorrow. Most people don't trust and stay in the boat. A few of us, a few of you will trust him in this moment and get out of the boat and will experience the almighty, sovereign, loving hand of Christ come down upon your life and lift you up and have an experience of God that could never be replicated and never duplicated this side of heaven. But it's your trust that will position you for it. Won't you pray with me? Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love. You have pursued us since before the world was created. You have showered us with blessing upon blessing. You have kept us from reaping everything we've sown. You have rescued us and kept our head from going all the way under. And somehow, for some reason, we still have those moments of doubt and fear and anxiety, and we're sorry. You have proved yourself time and time again. Our eyes have been blinded. Our minds have been dulled. Our conscience have been muted to not realize it's been you all along. And so, Father, in this moment, would you call your kids back to you? Some for the very first time and some of us for the thousandth time. Hear us and hear our words, hear our heart. And I'd invite you in the quietness of this moment between you and Christ. Say, Jesus, I need you. Help me. My hand is lifted to you. I need you to step in. Forgive me of my sin of denying you. Forgive me for how I've acted in disobedience and fear. I want you, Jesus, to be the leader of my life. Tell him, say, I trust you. I trust you. Father, right now, we are responding with trust. Still not knowing the future, still in times of uncertainty, even still in the midst of going under, beginning to sink, we are choosing to trust you. And because of that trust, we're creating space for you to show up and intervene. So do what you do now. Do what you've always done now. For those of us, your kids, who are responding in trust, step in, intervene, reach out, lift up, 
bear up, get us in a boat and get the boat to the other side. As you do that, we will trust you more. And as we trust you more, you will respond more. And as you respond more, we will trust you more. And as we trust you more, you will respond more because you love us and your grace is profound. Now, Father, I ask in the strong name of Jesus by the presence of the Holy Spirit that we would give you glory. That we would give you glory. Not just for what you've done, but simply because of who you are. Jesus, you are God, and we are yours. And we've started this walk of trust in you, and Father, we're not going to stop now. You've started this process of rescuing us, and you're not going to stop now. And so, Father, in this moment, we together with loud voices and lifted hands and joyful hearts and trust say we give you glory. We're not going to stop, and we know you're not going to stop. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.